Yeah, this is this is an easy one, bro. The fun this. this is fun. I gotta get back to the. Uh... You gotta get back to, to night duty. Yeah, my, my mom's she she came through at two thirty in the afternoon and she's been all the way down since then. Like you been trading off. Um, but I just I don't want to keep her there like that. You know, too late. Nah, yeah. He's still waking up a lot. Not not as much, but today today's the first day that she's not hasn't like ever been around. Like this is her first day without him. Oh, at all? Yeah. Word? Yeah, this is the first time. So she's obviously, you know, she's handling it well, but she's still, you know, checking in every 30 minutes, whatever. She traveling? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, she's away for work. Nice. So, um, so for him it's different because it's like, yo, wait, this is the first time that it's just daddy and grandma, like, mom's not here. And he's not upset, he's just, it's just it's different. It's different. Yeah, yeah, it's just different. Get used to it, man. So he's like, oh yeah, we can play all night. Like, nah, bro, nah, you still gotta go to sleep. Nah, you still, there's mm -hmm. still things we gotta do, bro. You played all day, go to bed. <laughs> So let's jump into it. Let's jump into it, man. Welcome to another edition of the Mask Off Podcast. I'm your host, Hawaii Mike, and um, got a good friend here, man. God, I've known a couple of years. I know I say this a lot. Um, what? Shit, we met probably through Mob Deep Days around yeah. that time, right? Late nights. Late yeah. nights, right? Yeah. You know? Um, got tight, though, from ringtones. Yes. We'll, get, we'll get into Scott that Tell. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was two at the source. Alerts, yep. Yeah, it's like you, you and DJ Ev, Ev or something like Ev, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But without further ado, I got my man, Just Blaze. Yes, sir. AKA, well, actually, real name, because this is called Mask Off, right? Right. So this is about revealing. So okay. it's like, you are Justin Smith. And you are actually my first guest, double guest from a city, because I have Victor Cruz up here. Oh, word? Yeah, so Patterson's fucking representing, bro. Oh, wow. Like, big. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm going to have to go get Tim Thomas next. Yeah, bro. right. But say, I, go get Tim next. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know him, so I can't have that conversation. I can get him, yeah, yeah. But I don't know him personally. So, uh, the, so the whole thing about this, this, this thing we're doing here, right. right, is having conversations among friends. Right. Right? Because I went through my depression and anxiety. I didn't do that. Right. Right? And I was right. always taught it's the stronger person who's able to do that. Right. Talk about their emotions, feelings, and confide in your friends. Definitely. And since I didn't do that, people was like, you? Like, right. You were feeling like this? Right, right, right. And if people didn't believe it from me, I was like, I really got to get out there and talk about it because imagine how many other people yeah, are exactly. out there not talking about it, right? Definitely, for sure. But it's really not about diving into mental health. It's really talking about, like, who you are and how you right. got to be who you are, right? Because most people think Just Blaze ain't got no problems. Right. Just Blaze has... The furthest thing from the truth. Has, has no issues. Right. Just Blaze's work with Jay and work with all these fucking artists and... Right. And life is grand. And life is grand. Nothing. And in a lot of ways it is. But, you know, everybody everybody has their thing. Yeah, everybody has their things that they, that they deal with or that they've dealt with, you know, what have you. And um, it's interesting. Um, the grass is always greener on the, on the other side. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're a kid, you can't wait to grow up. Exactly. When you grow up, when you wish you were a kid again. You wish you were a kid. Like, you know, like, well, I wish all I had to deal with was homework. Right. You know? But if we look at everything now as homework... Right. Same difference. Same thing. Same right? thing. It's the same It just shit. doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop, nope. right? And you don't get a grade for it. <laughs> exactly. You don't like, get a grade. You get a paycheck now. Yeah. <laughs> or you get fired. Or you get fired. Yeah. It's one or the other. Yeah, right? So, Patterson, New Jersey. Yes. 40 years ago. Yep. What was life like? Um, Life was interesting. Um, I uh, had a fairly, I guess you would call it, middle class for the for the time yep um upbringing um there was a lot of sacrifice involved in that upbringing you know like we don't come from a lot of money but uh my grandmother and my great-grandmother actually i, I, I don't want to single any one particular family member out 
my family in general was very tight knit. There was a lot. There was a big su support unit. You know yep. what I mean? I come from that kind of family where like, you know, your your aunt and your grandmother and somebody else lived in this house, and you know, it wasn't like a thing where everybody had their own house. A lot of people lived above, below each mm. other, multi-family houses yep. and whatnot. So the family was pretty tight knit overall. Um, and uh, at that time, pretty much everybody lived with like one or two exceptions in Patterson. So, you know, I had like my great grandmother on Lawrence Place, you know, my family on the east side, my dad's mom also lived on the east side a little bit further up in the, in the really nice mansions. Um, and then I had like a family on the west side, like around the Cass Ave area. Um, family on 24th Street around 10th Ave. Um, but then I had another aunt, my Jenny, who lived around the corner, um, on 11th Ave. Everybody was really, really close to each other. Yeah. So, like, I say that to say, like, Christmas, the whole family was at Great Grandma's house. Thanksgiving, mm. everybody was together. It wasn't one of those things where, like, now you're just FaceTiming people, say happy birthday or Merry Christmas. Everybody was there. Yeah. And I remember... Sometime, I would say, I guess between, like, 88 and, like, 91, 92, maybe all of a sudden a lot of that changed. Like, mm. family members started moving to Virginia, Florida, what have you, you know, because that previous generation started living their own lives. So they started going to different places. So life was definitely different around that time. But the interesting thing about it is that is right around the time when I wouldn't say when my music career started, but when the possibility of having a music career. That young? Started, yeah, oh yeah. Dude, I mean, well, so going back to the support thing, like, I don't want to make this like you're a regular interview because a lot of this stuff is stuff that you can find out about me, but in a nutshell, you know, growing up around music the way I did, you know, my, my cousin being around for the very early days of hip hop and luckily having a record store literally right around the corner from his house he would go buy the new singles every week as they came out and then give them to me when they got old. It's also the same cousin who introduced me to Mix Show Radio. Mm. Um, then I had an aunt who was an avid record collector, more so like the funk, soul, and R&B stuff. Um, Mom was more into pop music and things like that. So I had all this music around me all the time. And with my when my cousin started introducing me to Mix Show Radio, I became very enamored with what I was hearing not just in terms of the music, but the the scratching. Mm. And um, once I started to figure out, like, oh, it's two turntables and, you know, a mixer, I had old record players and tape decks. I just didn't have a mixer. And I remember, like, begging my mom in sixth grade, like, remember we used to get the Radio Shack catalogs in the mail or service merchandise, you know, catalogs in the mail. So the Radio Shack mixer, I want to say, the was... realistic. Yeah, the right? realistic <laughs> joint. Yeah, it was $60. <laughs> yep. That's all that I small wanted. Small one, two channel. Yep. Just, this yeah. one, mine was, it was... I had the four... I, I wanted the four channel one. And it was only 60 Yeah, it was, it was $60. And I remember it be, that... But at the time, I think... I want to say it was maybe fifth grade, actually. That seemed like so much money. And and uh, I didn't think she would really get it. And she didn't understand what it was. And I found out years later, like, she went to my older cousin and his sister, like, so what does this DJ mixer thing do? And they tried to explain it to her, but, you know, it's a different world. She was, they were like, Sharon, just get it for him. Like, we've already seen what he can do with our records, and you see the way he plays his dad's keyboards, just get it for him. So she did, and that was the beginning of what led to where we are now. So if I had to describe it, you know, what life was like, it was very 
it was uh had a lot of support, but there was also just a lot of chaos at the same time, you know, like uh just without di diving super deep into it, you know, mom, moms and pops separated when I was 10 years old. That was a, interestingly enough, they never divorced. They separated, but never divorced. Mm. It's um, expensive. They never, no? Yeah, well, that I think that's what it was. <laughs> like, I remember somebody, I remember <clears throat> overhearing a conversation saying that the divorce was $12,000. They just didn't have it. Yeah. You know, so they just separated. But mm. it was interesting that when my dad died, she was still technically didn't his wife and next to kids mm -hmm. so she had to be the one to go and mm. deal with a lot of you know those things even though they hadn't been together for 20 something years probably um but yeah so there was a it was there was this dynamic of support but also this dynamic of of uh just i guess chaos you know what i mean like in terms of like uh you know the home life um the uh there's a lot of arguing stuff mm. like that um did music become like an escape for you no it wasn't right? an escape because to be honest like the music event if i had to directly trace it anywhere you know in terms of the technical side of it it came from my dad you mm. know what i mean like he was when he used to come home every night and play his jazz organ after he came home from work for hours on and on saturday afternoons so if anything i loved music but actually my the only, my earliest memories of seeing it being played or made or whatever you want to call it was from him you know and the, th the thing is is I, I don't really know you know because I was so young and my mom always made it a point to protect us from whatever was happening I don't really know a lot of the circumstances mm -hmm. you know in terms of what happened what didn't happen what went wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. it just wasn't a good situation you mm -hmm. know um but again because my family was supportive they made sure that we were never really exposed to a lot of the rougher side of of their relationship. Mm. Um, so you were being protected more from the family and, and the stress of drama of that than the streets or anything. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Right? Now, see, my mom, I think the reason why my family was so supportive and my mom's in particular, um, like I said, we didn't come from a lot of money, so we didn't have much, but the things that we really, really wanted, we had. And I think what that was, I, want, I don't want to say that was her way of keeping us out of trouble, I think for her, she realized that she was kind of was blessed to have three kids that weren't really interested in trouble. Mm. You know, like we, like I said, we had kind of like a middle class upbringing, but the hood was five blocks away. Mm -hmm. You could go to Park Ave and get whatever you needed to get, do whatever you, you could go to Vreeland Ave and it was still popping. You know, but we just had no interest in doing that. Mm. And I think for her, it was like, well, if my kids is, you know, relatively good kids and they, they, their grades is decent or whatever. This keep, you know, this keeps them on the path that they're on. She, they, she, she always supported it. You know what I mean. And even when she couldn't afford to support it, she found a way to make it happen with with the help of other family members. Nice. So yeah, you know, I was definitely protected on a lot of fronts. And you're the youngest, or the middle, the oldest, oh, the oldest. Yeah, oldest yeah. I thought you. Yeah, my, I got one brother who's uh, three years younger than me, and then a sister who's three years younger than that. Oh, oh I thought you was like middle or something. Yeah. Uh, shout out to DJ Pound. He's the middle child. DJ Pound? DJ Pound. Yeah. That's his DJ name, Duran. Duran. I forgot we're talking <laughs> about regular names here. Duran is the middle child. Ah, we can talk about that. I mean, you know. But what was I having her great grandmother? I don't think I ever met my great grandmother. Like that's that was ill. And you know, and I think I, that's something I always took for granted, mm. and didn't realize that that was a special thing to have both your great grandparents. Yes, both. Yes. Like, um, well into like my teens and twenties. My great-grandmother probably passed 
some point right after college, like I, I left college in my third year, but like somewhere like in the late 90s and my great grandfather only passed within the last eight, nine years, 10 years maybe. Um, wow. Yeah, actually no, 2006. Cause in so why, and why you hate the game, huh. uh, the record with game and Nas, but it, where there's like nine or five minutes of just a choir, whatnot. Right before the choir starts, I say rest in peace, George Eliot. That was my great grandfather. So he had just passed. So that was 2006. So he was what about 28? 28. Yeah, right. That's yeah. Crazy, so it was, huh? yeah, but that that was it was ill because again that's something something that you know you assume everybody has because you have it. Mm-hmm. And they were active. It wasn't like they weren't like bedridden, elderly, walking around with with a walker and nah. Like my until he got really sick and ended up in the hospital, my great grandfather still drove himself around every day. He was still healthy, still strong. The only thing he needed was hearing aids. His vision wild. was good. His 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 wits was still about him. Um, my great grandmother, same thing. Like uh, the one thing that my great grandmother always used to instill, you know, was was like the empowerment thing and uh in terms of like like she, one of the reasons why we have a lot of our information about our family history is because she was one of the few black women who could actually who had her who had her own money could even afford a camera think mm-hmm. about it, like a camera in the, the 20s yeah. 30s whatever like the camera was a luxury yeah. you know just to have your own personal whatever like so we have pictures of our family going back that far that's nuts. um she was also, you know, she owned one of those houses that was like the four or five family joint. Where it was like everybody in the family lives here mm-hmm. until you until it's time for you to go build your own house. Exactly, whatever. This is just this is where you stay, you know. Um, I remember her like uh, one of the last conversations I had with her before she passed was um, I don't remember the exact wording, but the overall message was, "You're not doing what you want to do. Don't be afraid to go figure it out." How old were you then? That was, you said he was in high school, college? Like late, like early college. You know, like, and I was, I was dabbling in the music thing, but wasn't doing it. I didn't think I could, I didn't think I was capable of doing it seriously. Did that help you ask your mom? No, it totally did. Like, the next thing I did was I went to, right after she passed, I remember having a conversation with my Aunt Jenny. My Aunt Jenny bought me my ASR 10. Okay. And I, t- I remember telling her about that conversation, and she was like, all right, I guess we're going to Sam Ash. And, you know, she looked at the price tag on the ASR. I think the ASR was like $2,600 at the time. She was like, I, I, I. like I said, we don't, my, my family's mostly educators. This is t- teacher salary teacher in the salary. 80s and 90s. Yeah. is nothing. So she's like, well, what about this Roland here? It says sampler on it, and it's $600. And I'm like, that's not what RZA uses. <laughs> so, you know, the funny, the crazy thing is, is I didn't even know, like, go, you know, fast forward years and years later, after I'd already become somewhat successful, she was still paying that ASR off on her credit card. I didn't know that. But that's the kind of family I come from. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's in terms of support, but also just protection. That's nuts. Yeah. yeah, like I would have called my nephew. Like, hey, listen, <laughs> I done seen you on TV and doing that. Yeah. I, I need that paid off. But that instills different things in you, right? Yeah, like, yeah. 
Like, no. for her to do that, that would have been like, oh, that's normal. For her to do that and not say nothing. Right, exactly. She, like, that's... No, no, to be honest, I, I'm, I'm joking. I wouldn't have done that. I would, I would, have, I would have done yeah, the same no, I'm just saying. But, like, that's, but, but that's what I'm saying. But that's what's instilled in you, right? Exactly. That kind of shit. Whereas, that, so that gives you kind of an example of kind of, the, you know, kind of what I, the energy I grew up around. You know, it was a... Uh, like I said, there was there was definitely some chaos and definitely some tumultuous times. But I think that helped shape us, yo. In, in I know, definitely. That, like, when you come out of you, we... If if you saw everything looking like flowers all the time and right. you went out into the real world, I don't think you know what's bugged out. And I, I hope she doesn't get upset at me for saying this. Um, I don't think she will. But like at one point, my mom, I'm she was seeing. I'm assuming what was a psychiatrist or a psychologist back then. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it had to do with my parents' issues. I, I don't know. I don't, right. I don't. I don't even. I just remember. But you that knew. She, but you knew. All I knew was that I would have to go to her to the doctor's office, but it wasn't a physical doctor. She was going every week. Mm-hmm. And all she would do was go there and talk to him. Mm-hmm. So looking back as a growing up, I'm like, oh, that must have been a psychiatrist or a psychologist mm-hmm. of some sort. And I remember I, I thought that was cool. I'm like, I want to mm-hmm. go talk to him. Uh-huh. So she's like, for what? I'm like, I want, I want, I, whatever you. As a kid, you always want to do what your parents are doing. <laughs> so I went in and you know she they made an appointment for me. I made up a whole story. Like, do you have an imaginary friend? I thought it would just sound cool if I said yes. <laughs> I didn't have it. I, didn't, I made up a name for him and everything. I remember I actually, there was a kid in my class who had an imaginary friend. So I basically just told my friend's story to the psychologist. And I think he knew I was BSing too because they never called me back in for anything. <laughs> I had a best, I had an imaginary friend named Motron Jumbo. <laughs> who was some Stunting kind of... the Jumbo Tron? Yeah, like some kind of... <laughs> he was some kind of a robot or something. I don't know. I, I, I literally just... I regurgitated something I heard in school earlier that day. And how old were you at that? That was... Eight, nine-ish, huh. around there. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The, the stories I always hear now is like, that eight to 12, especially for creatives, mm-hmm. was like a super important time. That shapes time. everything. It's a super important time because you're like... Your kid, and then you get to this like oh two digits, and then right. you get to your teens, right? Right, and there's a lot that happens right there, yo. Because yep. you go from like probably not going to school by yourself to starting to go to school by yourself to starting to look at the opposite sex to start getting hair in your nether, you know what I mean? Right. And that's a short... I feel like that kind of those that time period more so than any other shapes the core of who you are. You learn and adapt and you mm-hmm. grow, but I feel like your core your, of your identity gets shaped right around, right around that. I mean, so then talking about that, like, when did you get into technology and fucking around with wires and re... <laughs> Since I can remember, like, so you can remember, like, my, my, my dad was a computer programmer, right? Mm-hmm. So there was always computers around the house, uh, gadgets like beepers, pagers. He, he, was a, he, he worked in IT for uh, Pfizer. Okay. So of course um, in Jersey, yeah, right. <laughs> so like I'd be in his lab on Sundays when he would work a little overtime and like see the the spinning data tapes and the flashing lights. It looked like two thousand one Space Odyssey. Like mm-hmm. that was his office, you know. So I was just always I was between being around that and being around his keyboards and everything else. It was like he was like the Grand Wizard, mm. um, and. Then at home, like I said, he would have gadgets like, you know, pagers, cordless phones, modems, and what have you. So that's just kind of what I gravitated towards, you know. And I guess looking back, you could kind of say it was, I guess, maybe emulating, you know, the things that your dad did. But 
it was never he not he never it wasn't ever a thing where he was like, come on, son, let's go build a let's go build a, mm-hmm. you know, well whatever. It was just I just used to watch what he did and then try, kind of put my own spin on it. Like he was a gadget guy or he was a tech guy. He wasn't the type to try to f- take things apart and figure out how they worked. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, that was more my thing. Like I used to get in trouble for taking apart the answering machine or taking apart the court. He was the, the like one of the few people to have an answering machine. I was the one that took it apart when he wasn't looking just to figure out how it worked uh, or take apart the cordless phone and try to hack a bigger battery from a radio control car onto the cordless phone at like seven years old or writing computer programs at eight, nine years old. You know, um, so I was always more interested in what was under the hood mm-hmm. of whatever the technology was, which got me in a lot of trouble as a kid because I would break things and you know, trying to take them apart. <laughs> um, but that was pretty much there since the beginning. You know, and I think being growing up around that time where like there was that technology shift of the mid eighties where all of a sudden things are becoming wireless mm-hmm. beepers, cordless phones, uh the first um uh commercially available sampler. I mean, you could, remote controls are starting to become Right, it was like yeah, wireless remote controls. <laughs> like, that was a thing back like, then. Like I remember my dad had a had bought like this ill VCR that allowed you to record a second track of audio onto a movie. So like, I remember in my my presentation in what year did the Ninja Turtles movie come out? I think I was in eighth grade. I think my my brother was in six. I think I must have been in eighth grade. It was nineteen ninety. Yeah, I was eighty nine. Yeah, eighty nine ninety. So. Like, we had this, uh, the whole idea was to put some music on top of a movie scene. Like, that was like an assignment for class. So people are like bringing in tapes and then putting, pushing play on a cassette and pushing play on a, on a, on a, on a, on a VCR, VCR, like that the school owns. I come in with just a videotape. They're like, well, where's your cassette? I'm like, I don't need one. They're like, huh? I'm like, no, my music is on the tape. So what I had did was I had, because this I've realized that this audio this VCR allowed you to overdub additional audio. I took the, the Ninja Turtles fight scene from the end where they're fighting Shredder, and I dubbed "O Fortuna" by Carl Orff. You would know it as the music from the Omen, the with the big choir yeah, yeah. so I have that playing while the turtles are fighting but because it's an extra track of audio you still hear the turtles dialogue and splinter and shredder all them yelling so the whole class is looking at me like oh you cheated <laughs> I didn't cheat my father just got a dope VCR you know but that was always my thing trying to figure out how to push te- technology to its limit and then around that time you have the first commercially available sampler the, uh, the SK5 mm. the SK1 which was something that you could buy like in Macy's it was a Casio keyboard that cost like a hundred bucks. And it had like, the original version had like two seconds of sampling time, enough for you to go, hello, and it would go, hello, 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 hello. But the way my brain is thinking like, oh, I can put music in that. Because uh. so, at the same time, I'm realizing that like, that James Brown 45 that I stole from my mom's, I'm realizing that Funky Drummer is the drums for Rebel Without a Pause. Or that, you know, uh, Black Steel in an Hour of Chaos is public is uh, Isaac Hayes, you know, and the breakbeat that uh, you know, uh, Jeff Jazzy Jeff's routine for uh, over Dance to the Drummer's Beat is Herman Kelly. My mom's has the twelve inch in the attic. I'm starting to realize at that time that like 
these records that dudes are rhyming on and the DJs, the DJs are cutting up. My mom has all these records. So then Casio comes out with the SK-5, which now has like six seconds of sampling time and drum pads on it. And I tell a story all the time. My, uh, my best friend across the street, his older sister got one of those for Christmas. She saw it for a day. <laughs> she was yours. And that was it. <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, so I grew up in this time of like this real, this shift in technology, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Where um, all of a sudden things that were like science fiction were coming, becoming reality. Like, you know what I equate that Casio thing to? Remember when you, you ever see that episode of Stevie Wonder being on the Cosby show? Mm hmm. And. They're all in the studio, and he tells Rudy to say jamming mm -hmm. on the one. Yep. And he puts it in the keyboard, and uh -huh. he starts playing it. Yep. Like to me, that's like me having that in my in my mom's living room or in the den. Mm -hmm. You know, like I felt like I was Stevie Wonder at that point. You know, and then I remember the, the, speaking of the Casio SK Five. Like, if you watch the old Three Feet High and Rising EPK, Prince Paul right above his twelve hundreds has the SK-5 and used to show that EPK on Video Music Box. Mm. So I'm thinking like, all right, you know, I'm running with the big boys now. <laughs> you know, you know, and um, it was that naivety, you know, that I uh, that allowed me to really mm. prosper. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you don't know any better. Yeah. You're not holding yourself back. You're not exactly. putting yourself, you're not saying I have these, 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 limitations. these constraints and limitations no box, because yeah. I don't know. Cause you don't know any better, yeah. you know. So like, as time went on, and I got my little a ASR ten, and I had a Tascam four track recorder. Even before the ASR, I had a four track and some other BS, you know, samplers and keyboards. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out why my records don't sound physically, or I'm sorry, not physically, or sonically sound as good as the records on the radio. That's what forced me to learn how to EQ the hell out, the hell out of that little four track, trying to get my records to sound as close to what I heard on the radio, not realizing those records on the radio were made in, stu made in studios. You know, Mixed on big boards. Exactly. And then, not ma and then mastered. Right, yeah, and mastered. Not on a four-track, you know. <laughs> that's with the exception of like, you know, but here's, here's the thing. On the flip side of that, Marley made great records on four tracks mm -hmm. in his kitchen. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that at the time as a kid. I'm just, I'm just trying to get my records to sound like the records I hear on the radio. So I think it was, like, like I said, that natural curiosity about what was under the hood you know, so to speak, that really uh, shaped a lot of what ended up becoming me uh, doing what I do. I mean, it's almost like an evolution of your pops, you know? Like, yeah. in a sense, right? It's like... Well, it's kind of like the flip side. So, like, he was a programmer by, you know, by vocation and mm -hmm. uh, music and was trade. his passion. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas I became a musician by trade, but that stemmed from computers being my passion. You know what I mean? So it's almost like the inverse... Of what he ended up doing, which is, which is crazy. Like when I when I hear these stories, it's like, you know, how they always say like your plan is already in place, right, 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 right. It's it's the more I hear people that have success in their lives and they talk about that part of it, right. It's like, yeah, it sounds like that shit was already there for you, right. But you were aware enough to actually go for it, to go for it. But you know, I always I always say that I feel like all of us have it in in our lives. We all have at least one shot. At greatness, I think you know there's a mean? bunch, but I think a lot no, of people are too close off why, for it. Yeah, that's why I said at least one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the shots are there. It's what you do with them once you you get them. Oh. You know what I mean? Because I can think of so many situations where if I had just turned left instead of turning right, 
my life would have played out completely differently and not necessarily for the for the better. Yeah. I can also think of certain things where I'm like, damn, <clears throat> if I had turned left instead of right or, you know, vice versa. It could have been. I could have gone that much. I could I could be that much further ahead. But you know what? It's all part of the journey. And as you live, as you live through these moments, even those things, those opportunities that you may miss or squander or whatever they are, you learn from them. You apply. You apply that because sometimes you can't see the opportunity that's right mm-hmm. in front of you. It's not even a matter of being closed off. Um, always, I think sometimes it's just, it's just a matter of not realizing what's there. You know what I mean? Um, whether it's lack of vision or maybe the way it's being presented to you is not being presented in a way that you even understand it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's, there's so many different factors. But once you realize that you had an opportunity that may have passed you by, you know, you learn from that and you apply it to moving forward, you know, ultimately. Um, because, you know, we can all play the coulda, woulda, shoulda game, but it'll drive you crazy. <laughs> drive you crazy. But it drives a lot of us crazy, bro. Yeah. Like, I did that shit for a long time. You know, and when you count other people's blessings, you end up only seeing what you haven't done. Right, right. right. Instead of seeing what you have done. You know, I, I get asked that, I don't get asked that a lot in terms of, like, counting other people's blessings, but when I get asked about, like, um, competitiveness amongst producers um, and things like that, and people kind of, sometimes they don't believe me when I say, like, I'm not really worried about what anybody else is doing. Um... Because I'm secure in what I'm doing. Because I'm secure in what I do. But was it always that way? Yeah. Like, I I just actually just talked about this last week um, in Amsterdam um, at ADE when they were asking about competition during, like, the blueprint era with me and Kanye. Because everybody, you know, from the way some people tell the story, it's like this big competition. Um, Like... I used to leave the room when he would play something and be like inspired, like, all right, I gotta make something dope. I'm gonna mm-hmm. make something dope. Yeah. He'd walk into the into the room after, you know, after I played something and be like, yo, how did you get your horns to sound like that? Like, what technique did you use? How do you sample those horns and make them sound so big? Mm-hmm. You know, like and I would show him the little bit that I could show him, because a lot of it just comes from my brain. It's not something I can quantify and put into words. Mm. But then he would do the same thing. I would be like, yo, what made you think to chop? this like that that makes no sense mm-hmm. and then he would take a chop that I just had sitting on the pads and just start hitting them and it would turn into something completely different and I'm like bro you know like <laughs> and it was I wasn't jealous that he could do that it was just amazing to me mm-hmm. you know what I mean but the same way he'd walk in and be like yo how do you get the horns to to sit this way or like he'd call me sometimes like yo I you know I need I need drums for such and such record I need a kick that feels like this and this and that does like that. I know you got all those drums sitting over there. So I just, I, I'd send them the drums. Like, here, yeah. take them. I mean, people you want know? the controversy. People want to think that there was problems and there was beef. And yeah, no. Like, dude, because I, of the way Kanye is now. And, right, yeah, no, there's plenty. There's, 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 a, there's a few records I, that, that, I, that I gave him drums for back in the day. Nobody, nobody cares. Yeah. Or, we, or we didn't care. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's, um, it's, it's funny. There was a, uh, this dude that was trying to troll me on, um, on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago. I would say his name. People be like, don't, don't say his name because you don't want to give him any pro- I don't even remember his name. To be, I, I, I honestly don't. 
I had never heard of the dude before. But, you know, he was throwing, he was throwing a lot of this, a lot of shots at me on, on you know, in his comments. And I guess in, in, with the intention of trying to rile me up or whatever, and I'm just like, I'm throwing memes back at him, like, like the Obi Wan meme. Hello there, <laughs> you know, stuff like, like bro, you, This is really what we're doing. Like, and I, and I, I looked him up briefly. And I'm like, dude, you're older than me. If not the same age, older. What are you doing with your life? So then he kept trying to. He was calling out, calling me out all different ways. And then his last thing was, well, we should have a beat battle, unknown versus known. <laughs> blah 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 blah. <laughs> and he's like, and don't hit me with the. I ain't got nothing to lose thing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I didn't even want to respond to it. Like at that at that point, I'm like, dude, this was funny for a couple of days. Because this went on for like three days. Couple of, I thought you were talking about a couple of hours. No, it went on for like a, a few days. <laughs> and in the end, I was just kind of like, um, <laughs> he said something about, don't you, he, he kind of made like a general comment and then added to me at the end, like, don't you, you know, don't you miss the days when somebody could just come up on you and talk reckless and, you know, uh, you know, and try to come for your crown? You couldn't wait to defend your title. And I'm like, where I come from, they call that insecurity, bro. <laughs> you think like if I took the time to set to to defend my title to every person who ever challenged it or. You know, when I'm like I, I, I would have nothing else to do. I would, I would be, I wouldn't have time to do anything else with my life. I wouldn't have time to do or answer all of those people trying to do that. Right, like right. <laughs> let it's, alone it's, make more beats. Right, yeah, it's it's not really that serious. Like, um, listen, I've I've made a a a good name for myself. I've made a good living, um, you know, um, and uh, to me, that's the definition of successful is when you're comfortable and happy. It's not being rich and. You know, don't get me wrong. If you if you end up rich, you end up wealthy. Then that makes the success all the more sweeter. Of course, <laughs> you know. But um, I'm okay. Uh. You know, and my my family's okay. My my son is good. You know, he he eats well. He eats better than me. My uh, dogs eat better. Don't jump too far. Don't jump too far. So hold on. Yeah. So drop out of college, cutting room when we first met. Yeah. So you were in there. What are those studio sessions like? What were you doing there? And then like, again, you made the jump from what computer programming. Right. Yeah. Left college. Right. Left college. Um, was that pressure? Was that no? It was the it was a shot, you know. Like, um, but a lot of people could put pressure on themselves, right? I just I, well, no. So, so here's the thing: is like, see, so yeah, I did college for three years, and music was starting to become more and more like an actual feasible possibility. School was becoming more and more frustrating. Hmm. Um, to be honest. A lot of it had to do with the way Rutgers, I went to Rutgers. Rutgers was hiring, was probably cheaper for them. They were hiring a lot of professors from overseas. And. Oh, because peculiar. Gotcha. And the accents. Me and my classmates, we would just be sitting there in school or in class looking at each other like, do you understand a word he's saying? Like he's speaking English, but nobody can understand it. And when you're. Talking about computer programming and logic and machine language or calculus formulas and whatnot, and the person, the accent is so heavy. It wasn't just one professor. It was multiple professors. It was, just, it was so discouraging. I'm like, mm. I'm sitting in this class, and I ver physically cannot understand what my professors are saying. And then I'm going to, like, on Wednesday nights, like, 
the open mic. Uh, I ended up becoming friends with a guy named uh, Black Forty Five, who was from Newark, and him and some friends. Uh, him, this dude, uh, Cool Mellow Max, this dude, uh, DJ Porno, were involved in this open mic that used to happen on Wednesday nights um, in Newark called The Pipeline. Mm. So I'm dealing with all these frustrations in class, rapidly losing interest. I'm DJing on the weekends, doing doing pretty well with that. Meet these dudes who have this, you know, there's a little hole in the wall club, to be honest, in Newark. Like, that was kind of a life-changing thing for me because like, you figure this is, like, mid-'90s. So, like, porn was down with Boom Squad, which is where Artifacts came mm. from. So on any given Wednesday night, Tame might show up. L. Yeah, L might show up. Redman might show up. Lords of the Underground? Lords of the Underground, Outsiders, mm. that, that whole mid-'90s, mm -hmm. all... And I'm just this, like, kid fresh out of high school. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, seeing this happen, and it started to become more, more... Um, it was attainable now. Like, it looked like it, it was, was real. It was, it was tangible. These weren't just superheroes that you saw on TV mm -hmm. anymore. These are dudes that are, like, real. Yeah. You know? Um, and, like, sometimes during the open mics, I would play beats. And I remember, like, one day, I think it was either Young Z or Tame. I can't remember who it was, but one of them was rhyming to a beat that I was rhyming. The record finished. And I said, whatever. And I just went for broke, and I played one of my beats. And they started rhyming. And then the, the tape went, you know, the, the, the beat was on tape. The tape stopped. They were like, yo, bring the beat back. So I played, I went to play something from a the record. They're like, no, that same beat, play that one again. Mm. So to me, that just felt like validation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, wow, a real known actual rapper wants me to rewind my beat so he can rhyme with it. You know, um, so that seemed like all of a sudden like a real tangible possibility. Um, and then around the same time, you know, Nasa, who ended up being my partner for many years, she started to intern at The Cutting Room. Mm. And during... Uh, my winter break. I always used to ask her, like, you know, you know, I want, I want to, you know, give me an internship, give me an internship. And then the opportunity eventually arose. Um, whatever, the, because she was kind of like the assistant studio manager. She was helping Dave get the place off the ground because he had just moved to a new location. Um, one of their interns got a stomach virus, so the idea was I would just come in and cover her shift for a week. That following Monday, that intern called like, "Yeah, I just signed a record deal with um, e with EMI uh, or with BMG. I'm not coming back." <laughs> That's a hell of a stomach virus, <laughs> right? So I'm so they looked at me like, "You want to stay?" And I'm like, "All right," but but now I have to go go home and tell my mom, you know, I'm not gonna go back to school. I'm gonna try this. Because like I said, it was that perfect storm of the music becoming tangible yep. and me rapidly losing interest in the school. And then and, winter break happened. Yeah, and, then it, and, and it's right at the winter break. Yeah. So it was almost like it was meant to happen. <laughs> you know, like, because if that ha had come up during the school year, it probably would have been a different conversation. Right. 
And I remember like asking, you know, a bunch of my family members, like, you know, cause I was, my mom was an educator. At the time I wanna say she was a high school principal, if I'm not mistaken. She might have still been a vice principal, about to be a principal. When your mom is an educator, you want to, you, and you're about to go home and tell her, "I want to drop out of school." That's not, you know. That's not easy. That's no. not. You're not expecting a good answer out of that. Exactly. <laughs> so I had spoken to a couple of family members already. I want to say I probably spoke to my aunt Jenny and my cousin, okay. And. I mean, Aunt Jenny was your people's name. Aunt Jenny was buying... Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that, that's my that's, godmother. That's like my second mother. Yeah. She's my second mother. Um, that's actually her, that's her Twitter, at Aunt Jenny. Um, <laughs> thank and, you, and thank you Aunt Jenny. Too, yeah. <laughs> so she um, she went to my mom and was like... I mean, I, I, I don't know that, she, that her and my cousin spoke to my mom, but I, I've always felt like they probably did because I went to them. So when I sat down with my mom, you know, and told her, I said, listen, I had this opportunity to actually work in the studio. And my rationale was, and it's true, most people come out of college trying to find an, ent an entry-level job in the field that they want to specialize in or what their degree is in. I have that right now. Mm. And to be honest, a college degree in that world doesn't mean as much. You know, like, but the opportunity is there. Like, I can get a real paying job. It won't be a lot of money, but it's a paying job. So she said, all right, look, will it make you happy? I said, yeah. She said, you promised to stay healthy? I said, yeah. She said, be respectful of others. Make sure they respect you. Yeah. All right, cool. Go ahead. That was wow. it. So all this buildup that I was uh -huh. in my head that I'm thinking <laughs> she's going to chop my head off. She asked me those three questions. She just said, all right, go ahead. Do what you got to do. And, and so you, then you started? You began yeah, so I, I, took, I took the, I took the, uh, I took the, the uh, job. Cause I, I want to say after that, the intern got a... You know, got her record deal. She, that was Jane Doe. She oh, ended shit. Up, yeah, she she ended up signing with Tip and Violator. Um, and then, oh, Mayhem Moran, hold on. Yo, man, what up? Yeah, not much. I'm doing a podcast. Can I call you back in like 30 minutes? All right, cool. I'll call you back in 30. <laughs> All right, bro. Look. Peace, Mayhem. So, um, fast forward, uh, couple of weeks the night manager gets fired from the cutting room and it was like an incident like I remember coming in that morning like 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. something and the police were there and they had to escort the night manager out I don't know what all happened okay but they needed a night manager right then and there and they were like because the thing is, I was still even gonna, I was still gonna intern but still go back to school mm -hmm. after the break remember my internship was supposed to be a week then it was like, all right, well, I'll intern for the two-month break or whatever. Then the night manager got fired. I skipped I skipped a step. The night manager got fired, and that's when I got the opportunity to actually have a job, and that's when I had the conversation oh, with my mother. Okay. Right. So, <clears throat> and I want to come, I'm going to come back to that night manager in that whole situation in a minute. But um, from there, it was like, my whole life changed. My first time in a real, like my first time in a real studio. My first session I ever saw. George Clinton, Old Dirty Bastard, and Q-Tip. Wow. Know, recording session. Um, just to fast forward through a lot of the things that I learned and witnessed there over the years, you know, like, uh, I, everything that I learned about engineering, I really learned there. Mm. You know, and I feel like 
that was part of one of my main key success, uh, or main, one of the main keys to my success as a producer was also learning how to engineer, knowing how to engineer as well. Um, that's kind of how I learned to develop the sonics of my sound. You know, the engineers, most engineers are, are fine with letting, you know, interns and just people who want to learn sitting in on their sessions because they have an extra set of hands if they need help help with something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And most engineers aren't, aren't, uh, aren't, uh, don't have an issue with passing down knowledge. Yeah, they're not super egotistical. Guys. Right. You know, um, so, I, you know, like DJ Nasty, uh, Ken Lewis, Christo Santillas, um, host of brothers, you know, just let me sit in and just watch. And we had the fortune of Raucous Records being right next mm-hmm. door and also Loud Records being one of our biggest clients at the time. So, like, I was watching all the classic Raucous stuff from, like, 98, 97 on. So all of that get made. Because if they didn't do that Platinum Island, Platinum Island was right underneath Raucous. Mm-hmm. So if they didn't do that Platinum Island, they did it at Cutting Room. Mm-hmm. You know, and Duro was working next door at Platinum Island. So I, at Platinum Island, him and Carlisle Young was another engineer. So I was always back and forth between the two spaces anyway. Um, and then, like I said, you know, we also had Loud Records. Um, our biggest client from Loud was obviously was Mob. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much anything from the middle of Hell on Earth on, you know, I watched. I watched make up until the G Unit album, I think. Wow. Yeah. Because even when they weren't using cutting room as much, they were working that soundtrack. I used to work with Buster a lot that soundtrack. Mm. So we would, I would, you know, like Bob was like, a lot of them were like fan. Um, you know, I, I want to say, I, like, I don't befriend a lot of rappers like that. I think Prodigy was like probably like the first one rapper that I was actually like friends with outside of like, are we going to the studio to make music? Like he would come by the crib and like, you know, a girl would make dinner and we would just like sit there and chop it up and watch TV, you know. Mm-hmm. And then Al moved around the corner from me, mm-hmm. so it was like really like, all right, boom, he, that you know, yeah, he wasn't was, there, he was there, right? Yeah, you know, um, but yeah, so a, the um, that's really where I learned a lot, even outside of the technical aspect of things. I mean, my mother raised me right to conduct myself properly with people, but I kind of witnessed firsthand also like the do's and don'ts because I saw a lot of dudes go, you know, come up and come down. Yeah. You know, when you work in the studio for a couple of years, you'll see that you got to think, realize the, the span of an average rap producer's career, you might get two, three years. Might. You know, um, I'm fortunate to still be doing things 20 years in. Which is crazy. Yeah, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm thankful for that for that every day. But like I've I've watched the dudes, you know, come in front and extra hard, you know, egos definitely in, in play. Three years later, you know, they're scrambling trying to make beats in the back room for a session because they they, they need that money. Yeah, you know, um, I've had engineers that we're not engineers. I'm sorry, A and R's or producers that I may have met during those days when I was assisting and interning and studio managing and whatnot, who uh, would, de- uh, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, nobody ever shit on me, but, you know. Shit, but you're an intern or you're just a studio manager or you're right. just, and in studio sessions like that, motherfuckers is dropping mad paper. Right. Motherfuckers is what, uh, locking shit out for 
Right. 12 so, hours, 24 hours a right. week. Right. So, they, they, you know, you might get treated a certain way. Yeah. Come back a few years later and they need a favor from me. Because now they need a favor from me as Just Blaze. Mm-hmm. And they will bring up, yo, I remember you from Cut Room. And I'm like, yeah, I remember you too. He was a dick. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, and I, and I don't, I don't hold it against you. Know, I don't, I don't hold it against people. You know, um, I never forget, but I don't hold it against them. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you were a super dick. I'm still gonna do this for you, but you were an ass. Man. You know, like, I mean, it is what it is. You know, all you can do is hope that people live and grow the same way that you've lived and grown. Yeah. You know. Um, like I said, I've always, I'm sure there's, there's people that I've rubbed, rubbed the wrong way over the years, but I've never done it from an egotistical standpoint. You yeah. know what I mean? I've always tried to maintain as much of a level head as possible and just do as much good business as, as possible. Like I said, I, I've seen, I've seen a lot. And like, being that I was the intern slash assistant manager slash whatever I needed to be at that moment, this is in, in the fax machine days before people were emailing contracts. I'm seeing <laughs> everybody's contracts. Mm. Oh, so you? So I gave you a little. Yeah, so I'm seeing like, oh, the production company's charging seventy thousand. You're getting ten. The production company isn't doing anything. You're doing all the work, but you're getting ten, and they're getting sixty. Okay, yeah, this is not good. I need yeah. a production company. <laughs> yeah, like, so note to self: never sign to a production company. Mm -hmm. Which is why, not that, not that they approached me with something crazy like that, but that's why, like, I never signed to Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. You know that was that was family. It still oh, is hold family. On, I don't get there yet. When did you shoot your first shot? Like when did you first get? Who's who did you first record with? Uh, was it a B or was it a session? Was it? Oh, Mace. That was your first session, like B, like did you made, like, like first time you recorded with somebody or made a B for somebody and you was in the for session. somebody that and mattered. They, and no, no, no. Period. What was the first? Like, oh, I wouldn't even remember. That was it. Was that far back? Because you yeah, were recording. Like, yeah, because I was doing stuff in my house with like local artists. Oh, okay. You know what I mean, like. I was doing stuff for my house, but like local artists, you know, or I wouldn't even call them artists. They were just the Friends, other kids. rapping. Yeah, the other kids from the neighborhood. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. like. But that was at your crib. I'm talking about like when you actually did a session. Like what was. What... The first time somebody paid for me to be in a studio to make a beat and like rap was, pro was probably Black 45. The dude from Newark. Yep. Um, there was a little studio that I actually had an ASR 10 and he ran Atari Notator on a 1040ST. And uh, I chopped up an Ahmad Jamal record in the Impeach the President drums. And uh, it was my first, like, I made the beat, and it was my first time, like, in a real session, made a beat in front of the artist and the engineer, and everybody's just like, whoa. You know, like, wow, this kid's going to be great one day. I was probably, like, 18 at the time, 17 maybe. Um, and the thing is, like, nowadays that's common. Mm-hmm. Remember, this was a different era. Of you know course. what I mean? Like, people weren't... That was, what, you said, nine, you said how old were you? 18? This was, yeah, this was like 95, yeah. 6, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Like, kids weren't making beats back then. Mm -hmm. Because it, making beats was a sizable and required a sizable investment. Mm -hmm. You either had somebody who was willing to put up a lot of money to put you in the studio, or you had somebody who hustled, who was paying for, you know, for gear or studio time, or you had a crazy aunt. <laughs> was maxing out her credit cards, yeah. you know. Um, so, like, I was making beats on a certain level from the time I was very young, but that's because I had access to that stuff, you know, from the time that I was very young. Um, but yeah, so where did we leave off? Uh, was you gonna go back to the night manager, or you just going back to the, the, the mace? Oh like yeah, the mace thing. thing. Yeah. So yeah, nah. So 
you know, I, I used to make beats, play them, you know, when I got out of work, I'd, when I got out, you know, off my shift at the studio, I'd go into one of the back rooms, especially if I knew somebody was of, of note was going to be recording, I'd like kind of leave the door cracked and just hope that somebody would hear Mm. something and pop in and be like hey what's that <laughs> so I knew that Mace's management was editing something that day I want to say they might have been editing a Nelly demo this is the same guys that discovered yep, Nelly yep I remember they might have been editing a Nelly demo or a Nelly sampler or something like that or a St. Lunatic sampler um nah it had to be Nelly back then nah nope. because was it St. Lunatic's already like yeah, originally it was going to be just, just the St. Lunatics. Oh, okay. And then they picked Nelly as the breakout star. Like, the old Noise World, Noise World was, the, was their company. Mm -hmm. The old Noise World, Noise World shirts said, Noise, had the Noise World logo on the front, and then it was Coming Soon, Harlem World, Cardan, St. Lunatics. Oh, yeah, um, I saw that one, shit. Yeah. They were orange, uh, bright like a, like a safety orange with blue, uh, with, with navy blue uh, lettering. Um, so yeah, so it just so happened I was working on a beat, and somebody from Mason's team walked by, and poked their head in the room and was like, "What's that?" Also, oh, it worked. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, it's just something I'm making." They're like, "Something you're making? Who are you?" I'm like, oh, "I work here." You know. Um, What's your name? Joss. Okay, Joss. <laughs> play me some more. And that was my, we ended up becoming good friends. That was my man, Super Sam. But yeah, he was like, play me some more. So he was like, hold on, I'll be right back. So he goes, he comes back and grabs. Remember Mace always used to shout out to Kuda Love? Yep. So he brings Kuda in the room. Kuda's like, and Kuda was more of like the hustler, money dude, more so than the music guy. But, you know, but Sam and Kuda were partners. So Sam is, you know, talking his talk to Kuda and Kuda's like alright well we see what's up on Thursday then and walked out the room so I'm like what's Thursday he said oh we got a session with Mace on Thursday you coming I'm like I can <laughs> so Sam's like alright this is what we gonna do we gonna, we gonna take new edition popcorn love we gonna loop it up mind you I just met this guy and he's already giving me a plan of action and I'm like wait we're gonna do what He's like, let's chop up New Edition Popcorn Love. I'm like, uh, that's not what I do. You know what I mean? Like, but, but if Mace's <laughs> management is telling me to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put all the Puff Daddy sprinkles on it and whatever, the ching, ching, ching. We can do that, no problem. So I do it. And they call, you know, Sam calls me like, yo, come to the Hit Factory on Thursday. So I go. And I played Mace five beats, and he took all five. And the last one I played was the Popcorn Love one, and he was like, that's the single. Starts jumping around, around the room. That's the single, that's the single, that's the single. And Sam looked at me like, I told you. And I was like, all right. And we did that record. We did a, we, we leaked the, we white-labeled the record. We did, I did a, uh, what was it called? All Out. And we, mm -hmm. I had chopped up Eye of the Tiger. It just so happened that M.O.P. and Hove came, mm -hmm. out, came out with it right around the same time, too. Um, but yeah, so we did that. So that was the first time that like my name ever appeared 
or my name, a record that I produced had ever actually been pressed to mm-hmm. vinyl. It wasn't the first time my name, my name ever, ever ever appeared on a record though. What was that? When I was in high school, I used to DJ at this. I used to throw parties at this roller skating rink, and it was huge too. Like some nights we would do two, three thousand people, and I'm like sixteen years but old. But not the rink. It was so the rink. There was the rink in Bergen Field, and mm-hmm. there was Skaters World in Jersey mm-hmm. in in, okay. uh, in Wayne. I did Skaters World in Wayne, mm-hmm. and right around the time that around the time that Flex started doing the rink on Saturdays, I would sometimes fill in there too on Fridays. Mm-hmm. But Skaters World was my main thing, um, and my um, my man DJ AP, uh, he had the link to the rink, and I had the link to Skaters World. So I would let him come cover sometimes the Skaters World, he, and he would bring me in sometimes in on the, at the rink. Mm. But anyway, um, we used to do these parties called, like, we used to do, like, throw actual shows, like, booked Method Man, like, in the 36 Chambers era. Like, it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a madhouse. They, this chain got snatched. He jumped in the stage. He jumped off the stage, started knocking dudes out, not even knowing that the dudes he was beating up was from the projects right down the block. Oh, God. I'm like, oh, this is going to get so ugly. Um, booked Redman. Uh, we, we used to do the, we used to do these parties called eight to eights, eight at night till eight in the morning. Word. Yep. And they, what they would do was they would, it would be skating until a certain time. Then they would clear out the skating rink and it would just be a massive party inside the entire skating rink. Till eight, serving alcohol till eight. No, 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 oh, no, no, no. Okay, no. I was about to say. The average, the average age was the other att- people attending were like sixteen, seventeen. And they was going to eight a.m. with. Yep. Parents would drop off at eight, come pick them up at eight. Wow. Which is, when you think about it, you look back, that's kind of wild. That's kind of wild yeah. as shit. Yeah. Until eight a.m. Yeah. Um, what parent was letting the? <laughs> Yo, the nineties, man. Yeah. Yo, eight at night would never till fly eight, right know? now. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and like a lot of times, the parents would be the ones to come pick him up. Yeah. You know, like my mom would be the one to come pick me up, but I was working. You know, but like, yeah, I'm trying to, to picture this. shit. Eight at night till eight in the morning. But my, my my point in bringing that up was um oh so one night know. we had uh Mr. C and Wendy Williams when they used to run together. Uh. So Mr. C hears me playing Jersey Club club music, which at the time he had never. Yeah. This was a very local thing. Still, mm-hmm. it was like Jersey, Baltimore. That was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. It I don't think it was really hitting in New York like that. At least not in the urban crowd. Nah, you know so. He hears me playing all the classics, you know, Hoes in His House, Percolator, you know, Brighter Days, all those records that I play, Shake That Ass by Tap, rest in peace. And he's like, what is this Shake That Ass record? So I'm like, oh, this is just, you know, one of our, this, this, is, this is a staple for us. And he's like, I need this record. And I'm just tripping out off the fact that I'm, I'm 16 years old or 17 years old, having a conversation with Mr. C. Like, I own every Big Daddy Kane album. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I've, I've stared at you for hours, like, on the back of the, you know, album covers. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you read, you read credits and read artwork mm-hmm. over and over and over. Now I'm sitting here face-to-face talking to you. It's mind-blowing. So he's like, I need, I need you to give me a copy of this record. I said, all right. He's like, can you come to the, meet me at my office next week? I'm like, where's your office? He's like, cold chilling. I'm like, Want me to go to the cold chilling office? <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> so, 
Uh, I want to say the following week. This had to be a Saturday night, so I'm gonna say the following Saturday. I, uh, I um, hit him and went to uh, the cold chilling office. Brought him a copy, a sealed copy of Tap, Shake That Ass, the original pressing. And because uh, the repress was a different version that was kind of whack, but I got brought in the original pressing. And he gave me an entire box of like every record from the Cold Chillin' and Prism catalog, or, like stuff that they had an overstock of in the office. Literally, an entire box. Anything that they put out on vinyl gave me everything. I'm just tripping that, I, that hey, I'm, I'm now hanging out with Mr. C and <laughs> he, I just, I just got a box of every Cold Chillin' record ever. You know, a lot of which I have, but now I have brand new sealed copies. Yep. Um, and then I from, met from them direct. Yeah, from them direct. Which is way different. Yeah, from buying them in the store. Yeah. And then I want to say uh, I met, I don't know if it was Lenny, because I remember Cold Chillin' was like run by like, what was it Lenny and uh, Tyrone Williams and I think Lenny Fitchelberg, I think his name was. I think it was Lenny that was there. And this was when they were, I guess everybody was trying to cash in on the Wu-Tang thing. Mm. So they had signed, they were like, yo, we just signed a new group named Brooklyn Zoo. You want to see the video? And uh, I guess I'm their target audience. I'm a 16, 17-year-old kid. I'm like, yeah, sure. So they play it. I'm waiting for Dirty to jump out. <laughs> Dirt never jumps out. I was like, yo, where's old Dirty Bastard? And they're like, oh, well, uh, you know. It's, it's just his crew. It's But this wasn't even his crew to Brooklyn Zoo. Oh, was it? Because they were signed to somebody else. Because I ended up meeting them years later at the cutting room. Buddha Monk and all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't no, even that's not who you're talking about? It wasn't oh. even them. Wait, so who is this person? I don't know. I don't, did that ever come out? I don't. I don't know. I don't even. Yeah, I'm not. I, don't, I remember Brooklyn. Like Brooklyn Zoo was a drunken dragon yeah. and shorty shit staying and all of them. Yeah, like this wasn't them. Okay. Yeah, yeah right. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, see that's before, so. A couple months later, DJ uh, Mr. C puts out uh, his version of "Shake That Ass" and my name is on the record. Like shout out to DJ Just from Jersey. I like, showed it to my mom. She's like, who's that? I'm like, that's me. She's like, what'd you do? I'm like, I gave him this sample. She's like, what does that mean? I'm like, never mind. <laughs> you know, but yeah, that was the first time my name was ever on a record. But yeah, like, it's so my first time ever being in the studio working with an artist was Black 45, but the first time that I ever actually did something major and, you know, to that to a major level was Mace, and that ended up going gold in a month. But for three years after that, or two years, two and a half years after that, I still kept my day job at the cutting room. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you hear so many stories of people being in and out. And you never really know if it's a fluke or not. You know, and I guess you could say I was operating from a standpoint of fear. From a standpoint of fear. Really? Well, yeah, because... You used to think, this is my first time, all of a sudden, like, we're not living in Mesa's dorm anymore. We're now, like, we got rent, I got rent to pay. Mm -hmm. The first of the month comes whether you like it or not. Yep. And I know that if I'm working at the cutting room, I have that, I want to say, by, by the end, I was thinking I was maybe making, like, 600 a week. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I had, you know, that rent money. Yep. And, that, you know, and, um... I was scared to just rely on myself and be self-sufficient, mm. you know. Um, and it took, like, it took to it got to the point where 
I was not sleeping at all. I was 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Just Blaze, assistant studio manager, 7 p.m. Or I'm Justin Smith. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Studio yeah. manager, mm -hmm. 7 p.m. to like 8 a.m. Just Blaze. Mm -hmm. Sleeping for an hour, run across the street to transit. Remember transit in... Of course. Jaime. Exactly, yeah. yeah go see Jaime and, and Go see Jaime and them. <laughs> Buy some gear, come back, take a shower in the lounge, and get right back to work. And eventually, you know, they were both they were both causing each other to suffer. Like I remember Dave, the owner, you know, eventually pulled me to the side and was just like, yo, like, why are you still here? And I'm like, well, it's only six o'clock. You know, my shift isn't over. I don't get off work till seven. He's like, no, why are you here? Like, you don't need this anymore. Mm. You know, he's like, said to be honest, you know. Your production work is getting in the way of your work here. Your work here is getting in the way, in the way of your production work. You're already, you've already become one of our own, our biggest clients. You made it. And I'm mm. like, so basically you're forcing me to quit. <laughs> and you were just covering your ass. Yeah. But he was right. You know what I mean? Like, if it, I, I, in looking back, I was definitely operating from a standpoint of fear more so than anything else. Maybe fear and maybe a little bit of insecurity. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, again, you, I always used to have that thing in the back of my head. Like, is this a fluke? Is this, you know, is this... Was it imposter? Like, not that imposter syndrome. Like, am I supposed to be here? Like, am I... Yeah, it was kind of like, yeah. Like, is this... was Did I just luck up? But then after a while, you look back and you're like, well, I've been lucking up for a long time now. And it's, mm -hmm. At the time, it maybe been two years, two and a half years. I'm like, that's a long luck up. Mm -hmm. You know, and every once in a while, I still think about that. But I'm like, yeah, it's been 10 years. It's a long string of luck. Oh, it's been 15 years. It's a long string of luck. <laughs> it's been 20 years. It's a long string of luck. <laughs> you know, so I mean, there's obviously some talent involved. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 um, I definitely operated from a standpoint of fear and doubt, like, in the very in the very early stages. Like, I remember, like, all of a sudden, like, I have, I'm 18, 19, whatever, with a gold record and nothing else. It was just kind of like, people like, you know, play me some more music. I'm like, I don't I don't have, like, a, a demo or, or, you know, like, I have beats in my computer or in my drum machines that, like, aren't arranged or whatever. Like, I... I'm wrong. I had, it's not like I had didn't have music. I just wasn't. What's the right word? It's like you know. You weren't constantly creating, or no, no, no. Were... It's like people ask you, uh, you know, when do you know that you've made it, mm -hmm. that you're talented, or whatever. And I'm like, as far as I was concerned, I was still figuring my thing out. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize that I'd be figuring my thing out for the rest of my life. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because you had this preconceived notion that at a certain point. You're good. <laughs> yeah, and it's like you know everything. You know how to make this. You know how to play that. You know. And then if, as you get older, you realize like it's a constant learning. It's a constant evolution, and, and what you know, a constant process of enlightenment. You know, and I always felt felt like there was just going to be this moment where it was like, all right, I'm here now. Mm -hmm. It's like no, bro. Actually, you are here now. You have a gold record. Mm -hmm. So you have to start actually putting this music out there. You know. Um, and like I, said, yeah, like I said, it wasn't that I didn't have music. I just didn't th think that it was going to happen as quickly as it did. And I it's funny that, that I guess I use that choice of words because for a lot of people it felt like I came out of nowhere. And I can see how how it would look like that from the outside. Yep. But nobody ever sees 
the grind that led the up. The build up. Yeah. That led up mm-hmm. to that. And it's funny, a lot of times people use the phrase with like new artists, you know, just pops up out of nowhere and you got to go, you know, and he's viral now. It's like, you know, I mean, in this day, day and age, that's more, it's more possible than it was back then, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but still, there was something that led up to that. It's not just like literally out of nowhere. I mean, no, definitely not out no. of just nowhere. That's just a lot of work. But I mean, again, the the thing and the way we look at success in this in this world is that, right? Right. Oh, yeah, you're lucky, or you just made it, or yeah, you're always going to be good now. Yeah. Now, see, you know what? For me, it was I attributed a lot less to luck and more so. Um, I always tell people. A lot, what some people look at as luck, I looked at as knowing what, the right situations to be in and doing my best to put myself in those situations and being prepared when I was in them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, but at the same time, you kind of weren't prepared because you said you didn't have music to play people when they was no, pre- no, no. But it was like but once I realized I had to get up, like I had the music. It mm-hmm. just, like I said, I wasn't in that mindset of all right, I'm gonna start producing for people now. It was. I'm still figuring this thing out. I have time. And all of a sudden it was like, no, now you got to do it. Mm. You know, and so it was like, I had beats. I just had to go back and like start taking it, not, not I don't want to say taking it seriously, but like start putting, like arranging stuff, mm-hmm. making beat tapes, making beat CDs, that's whatever. You know, and like actively start shopping myself. That's what I'm saying. Like I wasn't shopping yep. anything, you know, because I was, as far as I was concerned, I was still working in a studio and just still trying to figure out what my career was going to be. And, my, and it kind of just, the opportunity landed in my lap. So I had to quickly hustle that. You know what I mean, and I and I did. You know what I mean. It, it from there um, ended up producing for half a mil. Rest in peace. Um, that was like my homie uh, Matt. We were just good friends, and I was, and he was like, "You did a beat for Mace," and I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Mace, like Puff Mace." I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Give me some beats. I'm going to a meeting at Penalty right now, or Penalty Records." Was a, Mayhem and um, Martin Moore. Mar- I don't think Martin was there yet. Martin? I never. I if if he were. was, if he was, I never used to see him. I I always used to see Mayhem and Gino. Okay. I, I didn't see like Martin. I didn't. They, it, and it might have, well, yeah, because I think mean, they had the radio show together and all that. Yeah, so I thought they were. Yeah, but like I never saw Martin. I always used to see May and um and Gino. Okay. Um, I didn't start seeing Martin until later. But anyway, he uh, Mayhem calls the studio like, yo, you have this beat. I need it right now for half a mil. I'm like, oh, that's how this works? Like, because they brought me a check to the session the next day. Like, there was no invoice. There was no, it was just. Mm-hmm. Wow, those days. You, you come to track the beat? All right, here's your check. That's how this works? Yeah, I, that doesn't, I quickly realized that that wasn't the norm. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so like, you know, from there, I somehow I ended up becoming friends with and linking with Killer Priest. Um, and I was just, all of a sudden, I was just landing these random places and making these random, you know, rela- relationships and friendships. You know, people to this day be like, yo, how are you and Killer Priest friends? Like, this doesn't even make sense on paper. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. We just, we just, we, I don't even remember where I met Priest. Uh, I have no clue. I mean, shit's like that, of vibes. Yeah, like we, and somebody introduced us somehow. Next day, I know he's in my crib having dinner, you know, and we're going shopping in the East Village. I, I, I don't remember. And he brought Suave Sunny Caesar from Onyx <laughs> with him. So random. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, shout out to Priest. Like, and Priest was like the, the probably the first artist to just be like, yo, how much you charge? And I gave him a, a relatively wild number for that time. He's like, all right, how much you gonna charge me for like seven beats? So I cut the price by like a couple of grand for each one. He's like, all right, I'm gonna have them cut you a check tomorrow. I had that check in two days. Like he was the first one to do a pro, uh, like a package deal. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just want to get a bunch of beats from you, which is kind of the model that I applied for a lot during the book of the early days of my career. Like, you know, like moving up, moving forward when I started doing the bigger stuff like Def Jam, Rockefeller, things yeah. like that. Um, and I never did any. I never signed to a production company. I maintained all my my own stuff. So you were selling multiple beats at a time. Like what? Well, it was, was just like that... it was kind of almost like an IOU. Mm. Like, we want 30 beats from you. We're going to give you X amount per beat. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's just use 30,000. 30 beats times 30,000. I guess what, 900,000? 900, 900, yeah. So we're going to give you 450 now. As you turn in these songs, we will give you your back end for each one. So those were the kind of deals I was starting to structure back then. So it wasn't like I was signing to a production company or like, you know, or signing with a label. It was just, I was just doing production deals with them. Um, and that's how we made the bulk of our money, you know, which is why I didn't do a publishing deal for years. For years, I didn't need to. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, just going back to what you were talking about, it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of bugged. I never really thought about it from that perspective. Like, I really, um, always thought there was going to be this magic moment when you knew you made it mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you just knew everything you know so <laughs> um and, and I, I, but i'm still learning every day when when you look back is there is there a time where you were like that you can look back now and say like that was the time when i kind of like was there like i made it like no i don't i you know what i still because there's certain things that i'm still figuring out and still getting better at yeah, but there had to be a but, time. No, no, where but, you, but, but, but like, like you heard the rate. There was a certain song. Or no, some, but I was gonna say, you know, to be honest, it's probably two moments. The first one is when I was sixteen. I used to make no sweet seventeen. Yeah, I used to make mixtapes, and this was like in the height of the mixtape era. So like, Ronji. Mm-hmm. Up, Kid Capri. Uh, oh shit, Clue wasn't even really popping yet. No, nah, uh, Clue wasn't around before yet. that. Yeah. Um, Probably SNS. SNS and Do Up. SNS, yeah. Um, yeah, and Craig G. Shout out to SNS Craig G. Cause I used to actually make their fucking J cards. Oh wow. At Kinko's. That's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, like. So we have something in common. I was an overnight manager at Kinko's. He was. Over- <laughs> I was overnight manager at the Cardinals. <laughs> That's wild. So like, I um, I remember I put out a uh, my my first mixtape, Spring '93. Mm. I called it. It's called Spring '93, blowing up. <laughs> and um. And were you just Blaze already? Or no, DJ Just, right? DJ Just, yeah. 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 And um, there were two places in Patterson or downtown Patterson you can get mixtapes from. There's one dude named Mad Mark that used to be on the street with a backpack. There was another dude, I think his name might have been Muhammad, Muhammad Mustafa. He had like the proper table. And incense. 
Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> the table with the tapes, the incense, the whole thing. <laughs> so, Mustafa always used to be like, yo, they're not moving, they're not moving, but I don't, I don't see them out here. Oh, yeah, but hold on, let me just give you $20. Hmm? You claim they weren't selling, but yeah, I keep you. I saw you had a stack, and now you don't. When I call you out on the fact that the stack is not there, you want to just give me a little bit of money. Obviously, there's somebody's buying them, mm -hmm. but I would go see Mark, and Mark was completely different. Like yo, Mark was like yo, I can't, I can't sell enough of them. Like I don't know what you what you're doing, but you're doing something right. And I remember that uh, the next day. My uh, my great grandfather came to pick us up for something. So I couldn't have been seventeen. I must have been sixteen, maybe fifteen or sixteen. I used to stay at my great grandparents' uh, place after school sometimes, and I remember my great grandfather picked us up, and we're walking up the steps to the house, and I hear a car drive by playing my mixtape. Mm. That was an amazing. To feel that at that age, mm -hmm. like it's just somebody actually bought your tape and is blasting it in the system, driving down the street. To me, that was mind blowing at the time. Like mm -hmm. I had been DJing, I had been playing out, you know, playing parties and little small clubs and bars. You know, was supposed to be in them, but I, I got that. You know, I, I did, but none of that compared to. Hearing somebody blast your your blend your blend tape, yeah. that, that, was, that was their choice, right? Exactly, right? You know, that's what, what I'm saying. Like they like, bought that tape, yeah. or they got their hands on that tape and said, "I want to put this I'm in this." I'm playing this in the car. Whereas if I come to the bar, you're just in the bar playing. I got I'm playing. I can't turn you off. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you chose to put my tape in yeah. your cassette deck and yeah. ride to it. Yeah. You know, and then that happened the next day. Then I heard it again the next day, all the different parts of the city. And then at that point, were you looking for it, or you just no? I was, was just, just here. Like yeah, you can't you can't look for somebody playing your tape. Yeah. You just you know, the cars would just walk walk past. I mean, cars would drive <laughs> past. Cars would drive past as I was walking in the street, and I would hear it, and I'd just be like, "Yo, like, you know, like." To me, that was a lot more validation than almost anything, or a uh, great feeling more so than anything else. I remember when that Mace video debuted on MTV, and you know. We're all in the studio at the cutting room. Everybody gathers around the couch, and everybody's like, "Yay!" And I'm like, "Cool." Like it was. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't. I wasn't unappreciative, but it didn't match that feeling of when I was 16. Mm -hmm. I would say the next thing, or the next one, probably the uh, Fade to Black concert mm -hmm. when we did PSA. Because mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that record had been out for like what two weeks, a week maybe, and everybody knew all the words. And it's just that moment. Me being on stage and it's just me and him. The lights go down, and then it's like blood red across the entire garden. And it comes on and the way it drops and just everybody was just going nuts. The diamonds are in the air. And I'm like, yo, I I only just made this record two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Three weeks ago. Something like that, you know, or maybe about yeah, like three weeks ago. So to see you get that kind of reaction. That that was definitely a, a a heavy moment for me, for yeah. sure. You know, it was um. I try not to celebrate. You you, you and you, here's the thing: you have to take the time to celebrate those small victories. I don't do that enough. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was one moment where I couldn't help but. Yeah. But you're a workhorse, bro. You always work. I've, since yeah, I've, I've been you... trying to take more time to stop and, and smell more roses these days. Yeah. Well, we'll get into why of that in a second. Yeah. <laughs> So how did you, so you got to that, the the uh, PSA, but how did you get to the Rockefeller? Like, how did all that ha- even happen? And then... Oh, man. I had a, a, I don't remember how I ended up at this meeting, but there was a dude named uh, Dino. Dino discovered cash money. Devalier. Yeah. Dino, Dino discovered Duvalier. cash money. Yeah. Actually, He discovered on. the BDS. Yeah. Of cash money. Of cash money. And SoundScan. Yeah. That's what he discovered. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I'm trying to think what came first. There was a woman, I, I think there was a woman that might have been his boss. Got it. Wow. I had it took me a minute to connect these dots. Andrea Martin, who's still around in some capacity. She's mm-hmm. a singer-songwriter. Okay. She had a partner named Ivan. Ivan and Andrea uh Wrote a lot. I think they've been written for Whitney and a few other people. They were doing a lot of work under Clive, I think, at the time, maybe. I somehow ended up befriending them. Mm-hmm. They introduced me to a woman who worked at Universal. Cannot remember her name. She had an R&B artist that they were about to drop. They put me in the studio with her. They wanted to put me in the studio with her to see if I could come up with something. I did. They didn't like it. But she said, you actually may be more fitted to meet with Dino. Hmm. I said, all right. So I went and met with Dino. Sat with him for like an hour. And this was when cannabis, this was an era of like cannabis, first album they were working on. Mm-hmm. Rakim, uh, seventh letter, eighteenth letter, eighth. Seventh, oh, I'm sorry, eighteenth letter. letter. Yeah, eighteenth yeah. letter. Um, that era. Uh, maybe at a Lost Boys, or maybe they had a group called the Group Home. Group Home, I think, or no, it was Group Home Entertainment, which I think was Lost Boys and a couple of other guys. Okay, yeah, because Group Home was on payday. It was on payday, yeah, yeah. but it was, Lost Boys had a thing called Group Home, mm. if I'm not mistaken. I think it might have been their crew or Group Home Entertainment presents something like that. I don't, I don't remember the specifics. Had nothing to do with Primo and you know, mm-hmm. Gangstars or Foundations Group Home. But anyway, so Dino is going on and on. You know, this is right around right the time that the cash money thing happened. It's like I got a zillion acts right now. I got, I'm doing cannabis, I'm doing Rakim, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, I played him about 30 beats. He was, and I was, I was one of the first people. I might have been, this is going to sound crazy, I might have been the first person in New York to have beat CDs. Okay. I bought my own. Again, just being on some tech nerd, but then also just trying to, you know, wow people. Instead of coming with dats or tapes, I would come with CDs. Mm-hmm. So people were already impressed off the bat, like, yo, you brought a CD? Yeah. How'd you record that? Yeah, <laughs> like, how did you even do that? Um, I had, like, literally the first available, the first commercially available uh, CD burner that could burn audio, not just data, but audio. Anyway, do this meeting with him. Um, gives me the whole... Gilbert Godfrey, third base. You're going to be big, 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 big. Sign right here. You're going to be famous. And, you know, you can always buy more hats. You know, the whole Gilbert, Gilbert Godfrey speech. I'm going to be big. I'm going to be rich. I'm, you know, he's doing so many projects. I never hear from this dude again. 
But <laughs> I am uh, at the studio, intern. No, not intern at this point. I'm a general assistant, maybe, or assistant manager, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's all the same job. You just get paid more as your title changes. I answer the phone. Bruce Hornsby. You know, remember Bruce, mm -hmm. remember Bruce Hornsby? Bruce used to prank call me. I used to get, yeah, I used to get prank called by Bruce Hornsby. It's amazing. <laughs> so, like, David, I want to say David Byrne and Bruce Hornsby. David Byrne, I think, was from Talking Heads. Talking Heads, yep. And Bruce Hornsby were working on something together at one point. They were involved with something together. And this was right when Bruce had played the keys for That's Just The Way. Mm. This was right when he had done that. So he was booking the cutting room a lot. That's how we became friendly. Mm -hmm. So he used to prank call me and be like, I speak to Justin. Like, yeah. He'd be like, you know, this is John from Galaxy Records. We're going to offer you a $10 million record deal. <laughs> I'd be like, what do you want, Bruce? You know, it was that kind of relationship. Uh -huh. he, was a, he, was a, he was a jokester, super cool dude. Um, so then one day I get a phone call. Hey, can I speak to Justin? Yeah, like, hey, this is G from Rockefeller Records, and I just heard a beat that you did. And I'm like, Rockefeller Records, right? Right. What's up, Bruce? And he's like, <laughs> huh? And I'm like, all right, bye, Bruce. Click. I hang out. I, I'm thinking, I'm like, what would Bruce know about Rockefeller Records? So then the phone rings. I pick it back up. Studio. It's like, I was talking to Justin. I got disconnected. He, somebody kept calling me Bruce. And I'm like, all right, uh, hold on. Hi, this is, I put my hold. Hi, this is Justin. <laughs> Try to change my voice and then he realized it was the same person. So uh, he's like, yo, I was just, I just had a meeting with Dino Devaya um, from, from Universal. I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, he was going on raving about you for like half an hour and I brought an, art, I brought an artist to him who doesn't have a demo. I just wanted, I asked him to play some beats. So he was raving about these beats that he had got from you a few weeks ago and he played the beats and that's what my artist rhymed to. And there's a beat on there that we love, and I'd love to uh, sit down with you. So Dino never called me, but he was actively playing my music for people. It was it was a weird thing. Like, I still to this day I've never seen this dude again. Yeah, I, Dino's one of those people you never really right. see. You'll see right. him like, like an award show or some right. shit, random. I would to be honest, I wouldn't even recognize him if, if he bumped into me. I wouldn't even recognize. If he still has a dress, I'd recognize. Okay, is he always still has a dress? I don't said if he if still has a dress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he's, I might. <laughs> but it's like, if he said to me, "I'm Dino," I'd be like, "All right." Yes, now I remember your face. <laughs> if he smacked into me, I might be like, what? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, so, uh, so I, I go to, to my boss, Dave, and I'm like, yo, Dave, I got to go. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I got to go to a meeting. He's like, you just came back from lunch. I'm like, dude, Jay-Z's label just called me. He's like, oh, called you for what? And I'm like, <laughs> they want to have a meeting. He's like, all right, fine, go. He was just giving me a hard time. This is when they were, like, I think on 15th Street. So I go sit down with them. They're like, yo, we're trying to start this crew called Rock the World. We like it to, uh, we have Rock Wilder, uh, K-Rob, maybe Buck Wild, uh, this new kid Kanye West, and you. And we like to make you guys our five guys. Long story short, the production company never happened. Yep. But I did a deal with them anyway. You know what I mean? Um, and Kanye ended up signing with them as an artist. Yep. Um, but not a production deal. Or you did do a no? You said you didn't sign a production. Deal. I didn't sign a production. Deal. Okay. I don't know. I don't know that Ye did. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if he did. Um, if he did, he was the only. Well, I mean, he signed to Rock the World, 
it's probably probably it's probably some kind of a combination artist production deal yeah. or whatever I don't know but um yeah that's pretty much how it all started and um uh but for the first year Jay didn't pay me any attention and uh I'd always get like third party hearsay feedback like oh he doesn't like the drums oh he doesn't like the sample oh he doesn't like the music my thing was always I know I'm confident that if we can get in the same room together we can make something happen and I make this short time we've been talking for a while, so I'm going to speak through this part of the story. Uh, fast forward for a year, I'm working with Bleak, I'm working with Beans, I'm engineering and helping Emil put together her entire album. I only technically produced one song, but I helped her put the whole thing mm-hmm. together. Um, oh, remember how, remember how, how Emil and Killer Priest were together? Mm-hmm. That was because of me. Matchmaker Jess. That was totally my fault. For, for better or for worse, that was because of me. Random rap phrases. That's like random rap trivia. I remember people people used to be like, Yo, how are a million killer priest dating? I should stay quiet. Like I don't know, I don't know nothing. <laughs> don't you know both of them? No, I do not. Um yeah, so the um uh let's try to thought I'm so tired. The okay. uh oh yeah. So I had been working with Beans, working with Bleak, working with Emil. Still doing a lot of it out of the cutting room. And I remember, I remember being in the cutting room, doing an Emil session. And they're like, yo, so Jay just started the Dynasty album. We got a new studio called Baseline. Mm-hmm. We're going to start doing everything over there. And I'm like, Baseline? Like, I'm good over here. Mm-hmm. It's the cutting room. They're like, well, you know, we're probably going to set up shop at Baseline. So up to that point, we had been doing everything at the cutting room. So, fast forward a bit, I made a beat, Bleak hated it, he called it soap opera love music. Uh, mm. Jay had already, um, uh, I had a, a beat called, uh, that ended up becoming Streets Is Talking, mm-hmm. gave it to them on a cassette, Jay loved it, he rapped on it. So they summoned me to this new baseline place. Construction's barely, like, just, just finished. So I go, I get to baseline. Jay's recording parking lot pimping. Um, he takes his headphones off. He's like, oh, he comes in the room. He's like, oh, who the kid that made that beat? I'm like, yeah, he's like, all right, cool. I want to play it for you. But let me finish this other song first. So I, he goes in the room. Or he goes back in the booth. Finishes his first verse to parking lot pimping. I turn on the MP and I redo the beat that Bleak turned down last night, the soap opera beat. Mm-hmm. So Jay comes back in the room. No, he, he plays me streets. <laughs> he plays me streets. Is talking, dope. And then I play him. Uh, what became stick to the script? Then he's like, "Oh, this is dope. When'd you make this?" I said, "Just now." I said, "What you mean?" I said, "Yeah, while you were doing your verse, I did it in the headphones." He said, "I was only in the booth for like ten minutes." I said, "Yeah, I made it in ten minutes." It's like a oh, word. I said, all right, stick around. I'll make you a star. That's your room over there. And they gave me the B room. You got the B room. And then I bought the place two and a half years later. Yeah, that was only two and a half years? Crazy, right? And in that... Three or three, I'm sorry, three. And... But after that, you stopped recording with him or no? How many more songs did you do after that? No, after that, we did... You still um, did a bunch, right? Yeah, it was a black album. Because original gangster... I mean, I'm sorry, American gangster... Um, Kingdom Come. We, but that then, was all at Baseline still, right? 
or no? Mm-hmm. Uh-uh, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we were doing, st- we were shipping stuff back and forth. It was between, because what happened was they, they, so when I, when I bought Baseline, the deal was Juan, OG Juan, was never going to, he, he was he was doing 40-40. He wasn't mm-hmm. interested in the studio business anymore. They decided to get back in and open up Rock the Mic. That's what it was, okay. Right, so they wanted me, they wanted to partner with me on Rock the Mic. They were like, yo, you know, why don't you guys just shut down Baseline, partner up with us on Rock the Mic, and we'll, um, you know, we'll just join forces and put it all together. Um, the logistics of that would have been easier said than done. Yeah. Um, in terms of leases and breaking leases and all that stuff. Um, so I didn't do that. It was just like, it, and on top of that, I want to say like, the rooms at Rock the Mic, one of them wasn't really all the way done yet. So mm. it was just, it was just like, you know what? It's, it's cool, we'll stay here, but you, you guys are around the corner, so we're gonna be back and forth anyway. And that's what it ended up being. Like Blueprint 3 was recorded at Rock the Mic. It was mixed at Baseline. Mm. So it was, you know, like even though I and also I did two records on Blueprint Three, but um, we bought, we couldn't use them on the album for two different reasons. Um, sucks because they were great, but they'll probably never see the like, uh, never likely to see the uh, light of day. Um, but uh, yeah, you know what I think. Uh, and then after that, I think uh, Jay started. Jay moved to L.A. and started working in L.A. Yeah. Um, what's the total you did? Like thirty-seven or some shit? Or is it more than that now or not? With the records that I've done with them? Yeah, when something just, like thirty-seven. Yeah, I, think that's I don't know why that number. You told me that shit. I think certain things stick in my head with you because I don't know why, but like, I remember you gave me PSA. Remember that? Right. Yeah. The instrumental from right. my fucking website, you know? Oh right, because you, you couldn't because the instrumental wasn't available nah, online anywhere. Yeah, you couldn't. Nah, buy it. you couldn't get that shit anywhere. I still got that CD. That's crazy. I still got that shit. I don't even have like a proper instrumental. Oh, well, when I find the CD, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll shoot it. Yeah, it's all good. I got you. I got you. I know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but people still bug out on that because people still look for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no official instrumental like, anywhere. Like, like, I wish I would have recorded that fucking website and, like, had that shit. What was it, the old LTD site? Yeah, it was the wow. first LTD magazine website, you know? And, like, that shit was flash, heavy right. as fuck. Like, flash. took forever to load. <laughs> I remember, like, the, the, the whole thing, like, the iPhone doesn't load Flash, it's terrible. Like, I, 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 you couldn't pay me. I would not want Flash to load on my phone. No. Steve Jobs was right, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like, can you imagine if they had enabled Flash on the iPhone? Oh, my God. You wouldn't be able to do shit. Not at all. Your processor would just be a wrap. Yeah, yeah it'd, be, it'd be over. Um, I mean, without getting into too much, I mean, obviously there was a lot going on with that shit, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of shit happened. Was there ever a point in time where you was like kind of stuck or didn't know where that was going to go? Because you didn't have all your eggs in that basket, right? In Rockefeller. You was doing... Or... Yes, yeah. I, I was... Yeah, I mean, you never put all your eggs in one basket. I didn't do that in anticipation of things not working out with them. I just didn't want one thing to affect the other. Yeah. So in other words, you know, like... Because here's the thing. A lot of times people will try to sign you so they can lock you down. Yeah. And get your best first before anybody else gets it. My thing is, it's like I'm already ro- running, running with arguably the hottest crew in hip hop. You know, definitely the hottest crew right now, and arguably ever. Mm-hmm. Or one of the dopest, one, definitely one of the dopest ever. You don't have to worry about me going anywhere else and giving everybody great music. Mm-hmm. I, I want to build. I, I want to be a part of this. Yep. 
you know. Um, and they also knew, you know, most of the artists had an understanding, like, you know, I would give them what I felt worked best for them. Mm. You know what I mean? So, like, it was never... The only time I had problems with artists getting upset about beats was, like, the C and D team. Mm. The A, B teams? Never. Yeah, we, 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 we had a great working relationship. And that's why it was like, there was never need to sign anything. It was just like, I'm going to give you your best. You're going to give me my, your best performances on records. And anybody that I was working with outside, many times, a lot of times, was like fam anyway. It was like, it was like cat, like a, like fab or whoever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like that's all, it's all kind of the same crew with all extensions of, you know, family, you know? So, um, yeah, like I said, when you have the advantage of having one of the best crews ever at your disposal. Oh, sorry. Oh, hey. One of the best crews ever at your disposal. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, things like that, really. I mean, that changes the game. Does it? Did it make you more, not comfortable in the sense, but more confident, I guess, like being in that team? I mean, you had to, right? Oh, definitely. You know, and actually, to be honest, um, one of... Uh, I think for a long time, in most cases, not all, but in many cases, I was just I was just making beats. I wasn't really producing because I was still a little too timid to voice my opinion mm. to artists because I'm like, who am I to tell such and such how to do their rhyme or who am I to tell this engineer, you know, that I feel like the, the bass should be doing something different than what he's doing, you know? Like, again, remember I, I, I told you I'm at that point where I'm like, I don't feel like I've made it. I'm still kind of just winging it a little, mm -hmm. a little bit, or at least I think that I am not realizing, like, yo, you're already here. Um, one big thing that helped me break out of that, like I said, it wasn't like that with every artist, but with many of them it was. But one thing that, big thing that helped me break out of that was um, when me and Jay did Soon You'll Understand. Um, oh, hold on. was uh, Soon You'll Understand was a record on the Dynasty album. And the original version of it was literally just a loop in drums. Mm. You know, it was just a demo. And after he left the studio for the night, like I went, rearranged it, rearranged some of his vocals, moved some stuff around. Added more production to the beat. I actually produced it and made it a song. Mm. So when he came in the next day, I, you know, I wanted to play it for him. I, I was nervous about what, what his reaction was going to be because it's, I'm taking the liberty to change the song. Mm -hmm. So I play it for him. And, you know, Jay's a little nonchalant and super cool. So he's like, eh, all right. All right, cool. Then he goes to walk out the room and I'm like, wait, what's up? <laughs> This is cool. He's like, yeah, I pay you to produce, not just make beats. Mm. And I'm like, yeah. that was kind of like the green light to go and okay. just really do what I do. You know what I mean? Like, at least within that circle. I mean, but we mean within that circle. That circle was the circle. But, yeah, so no, but, but so you understand, was, was from the Dynasty album. So this was my mm -hmm. first, this is my first outing with him. Mm. Like, like I said, I, I had worked with Beans and Bleak on a record yeah. before, and helped build with her album. But in terms of, in terms of dealing with him, you know that was like it's now open season. Because mm -hmm. sometimes you know artists will fall in love with the original demo you give them, and then that's it. That's how the record has to stay. Mm -hmm. You know he was all for like go ahead and produce this into an actual 
song. That shit gives you a hell of a boost. Exactly. So like I said, there's definitely, going back to what you were asking about, like confidence boosters and whatnot, definitely. What about like when Pump It Up came out? Like then you got the signature, Just Blaze? Oh, yeah. I know you fought with that one a little bit. Yeah, you know what? That was, thank you. Yeah, you know, um, that was the struggle because it was like, you know, or I needed to brand myself somehow. But I wasn't really trying to be like an artist, rapper, you know. I didn't feel like I had the demeanor mm-hmm. to do like what Dre does or what Swiss does, you know, when they kind of straddle both sides of the fence. Something like I don't have the demeanor for. Plus, I got bad asthma. Let me take my pump. (laughs) Exactly. I need a Ventolin break real quick. Hold on. Um, I could have pulled it off. Who knows? I mean, I I, I wrote for enough. I could have probably done it, but it's not not the technical thing. It was like the demeanor. I just don't feel like I had the demeanor for it. So, um, shit, what's the question again? I'm done, like, yeah, we have to get you out of here, bro. No, 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 just wait. But what, 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 what was the huh? No, but it? talking about like when pump it up, all oh, right, 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 your right. signature, right? Got it. So, right? so I needed to brand myself somehow, and um, right, reset. So, yeah, I couldn't do like we you know what Smith and them do, or what Dre does, you know, like they kind of straddle both sides of the fence, that just wasn't really. I felt like I didn't have the demeanor to be an artist, you know. Um, wrote, 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 written some great songs, but didn't have that demeanor. But then um, I needed pe- a way to pe- let people know who was making these records. Mm-hmm. So it started out with just like asking artists to give me a shout out at the top, like, "Yo, can you say my name?" You know, and most people oblige. But it was different on every record, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, you know. Um, and when we did Pump It Up, I asked Joe to do it. And he was like, no, do it yourself. And I was like, no, come on, man, do it. <laughs> and I want to say this, me and Joe were cool at this time, but this, this is our first time working together. It actually might have been like the second day we hung. But it was like, he was from Jersey City, I was from Patterson. Easy rapport. But he was like, nah, go do it yourself. So, you know what it was? Yeah, he was tight because I was making fun of him on the uh, Focus record. Like, uh, that was a single he had, had out at the time. And uh, he had the partner was like, Mondays, Fridays, Saturdays, running off the days of the week. So, when he was adamant that he wouldn't do it, that he wanted me to do it, I went in and did it in a way that was making fun of him. And I left it there. And he was like, oh, that's funny. And I was like, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Should have did it for me. But then I ended up becoming the one, mm. you know, and I really because I just didn't have anything else, <laughs> so I just kept using that. Um, but it worked, you know. It, it for the first long for the first long while, it was uh, people didn't realize that I was a person. Mm. What do you mean? They thought you were a crew? No, they thought that it was just a cool thing that, that rappers said at the beginning of records. It was just Blake? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like they didn't. They didn't. I don't think really, I remember uh, that. They didn't really realize that I was a person. It was just like, oh, you know, I used to hear your name on records and thought it was just the, you know, the cool thing to say. <laughs> like they was about to light up, just like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what ended up 
kind of happening was that like it kind of became synonymous with that. Mm. How and, ironic. Yeah, and I had yeah, right? and I had <laughs> to like I had to like issue a couple of CMDs to you know companies and things like that because they were trying to use it for other things. Um, and I had the name trademark, you mm. know, um, but I only have it trademarked in certain classes. Classes, right? You know, like. I remember there was like a Just Blaze barbershop in Florida. It was like, I couldn't really go out. You're obviously using the name because of me. And the lawyer was like, well, you can't really get at them because you don't, you know, you're not in the barber business. Mm-hmm. But then we looked at the website and realized they had a studio in the back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but they have a recording studio. They're like, all right, we can get them there. <laughs> um, and that's the thing. A lot of times, I don't even like going through that, but it's like, legally, you have to, do those things as if you don't protect your trademark. Show you're active. Yeah, you show that you're active. Then what happens is eventually they're like, "Are you you're not? You're done. You're dead, and anybody can do whatever the fuck they want with, with it." With your name, yeah. 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 Let's. Um. I got a bazillion things we want to ask, mm-hmm. but I know you're about to fall out. And yeah. I you, and I know you got responsibilities. And yes. one of the things I want to talk about was, I was gonna ask you like, what is the biggest thing that happened? And I think that's what you're about to go take care of. Yeah, dad. I'm a dad. You know, it's, it's so crazy. Um, and I'm looking at you, and I can relate because I, I went through this a couple right, times. Right. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? What's what, what's bugged out for me right now is, or what's what trips me a lot about this process. You said it. You said yourself about how the plan is laid out for you. Mm-hmm. So, like, when people think of genetics. The first thing that comes to mind mostly is the physical mm-hmm. aspect. Mm-hmm. Oh, he looks just like you, or he looks just like his mom, or he's like a perfect combination of you and his mom, or, or you know, whatever. I mean, that's great. What's tripping me out is are the actual traits and habits that are being passed down. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at my dad and me, we are literally clones of each other. Mm-hmm. Physically, mm-hmm. we look exactly alike. And our lives, like you said, was kind of just, was already written out. Like it was mm-hmm. kind of just like mirror images, mm-hmm. you know. My son sat in front of a set of turntables. He's never seen a turntable or a mixer or anything in his life. And it was the new Rain 12s turntable and a new Rain 72 mixer. Mixer has a zillion lights on it. Kids love lights. It was set up on the floor because I didn't have a stand yet. Hello? I got to call you back in like 10 minutes. All right, bye. Mixers have a zillion lights on it. He didn't touch not one button on the mixer. He went right to the turntable and right to the fader. Started moving the fader side to side and started spinning the record. This is when he was, I think, six months old. Because I posted a short clip. People were like, yeah, oh, yes. he, he learned it by watching you. I'm like, where do you think he... What show had you think he's been to? <laughs> what show do you think I took a six-month-old to? What do you mean? You don't DJ at home all day? <laughs> play records? Isn't that what you do all day? Like... Isn't, is that? <laughs> don't you just stay at home and that's not... That's DJ all, all day with nothing your, else to do, Isn't that your right? job? Yeah, no, right? no. So... <laughs> So yeah, like that was the first time that I was like, "Whoa, wait, what?" Okay, yeah, you know, 
Um, then the keyboard, you can't keep him away from it at all. Again, he's never been in a studio in his life. First time he walked in, walked into mine and saw the keyboard, he just instantly knew to hit the black and white mm-hmm. keys. Even before that, my aunt was watching him for a little bit when I was out of, out, of, out of the country. She sends me a video of him playing the keyboard on her iPad. iPad has, a, the, the app he was using, I forget what it was, has a bunch of different buttons and dials, whatever, and he's got, you know, six-month-old, five-month-old hands. He could go anywhere on the screen. He's he's not playing chords, but he's yep, yep. rhythmically touching the white and black keys. Um, I have a wall-mounted turntable at home, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm getting to a point with this. I have a wall-mounted turntable at home. His new thing for the past few months now has been like when he gets out of the family room, if the gate is left open, he runs right to the turntable, looks up at it. He'll grab a record from the record box and hold the record up like this, like trying to sit on like a player record, player record. And sometimes he'll take the records and spread them out across the floor or around, or along, around the hardwood floor, which is literally the same exact thing I used to do at Aunt Jenny's house when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Like I still va- I still vividly remember spreading out her Earthwind and Fire records and spinning them around on the destroying the record itself, you know, but just spinning them around and scratching the records. When I send, you know, her and my mom these pictures and they're like, this is literally you all over again. But here's where it really gets bugged out. And I'm going to actually end it with this and we could do a part two, if you'd like. So for his first birthday, I give him a real turntable. Not like a 1200, but like mm-hmm. a Vestax Handy Tracks portable turntable. I have a crate of about, I have like five crates of like garbage records, records that were literally going to be thrown out. They're in a closet downstairs. So I give him the Vesti, uh, the Vestax Handy Tracks turntable on his birthday. He's sitting there in his, in his diaper, no clothes on his diaper and a crown. And he's just spinning the platter on the Vestax. He, 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 he's spinning it. So I'm like, oh, I got to go get him a record. So I run down to my first floor, go into his closet that has these crates of garbage records. I pull out any record. Look at it. All right, whatever this is, I don't know. Anyway, I, still, I, don't, I don't even remember the name of the record now. I remember it was on Vestry Records, though. Vestry was like a house label, I think. Bring it upstairs. Put it on the turntable. He puts the needle on. He starts spinning it and you know, dragging the needle up. He broke the needle within three seconds. <laughs> but he's in heaven. It's making sounds and it's spinning. So an hour later, I look at the credits on the record and I see him mixed at the cutting room. And I'm like, huh, what a coincidence. And I'm like, man, let me go look this record up on Discogs. Then I see remix featuring Craig G. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I go back and look at the credits. And I see produced by Bill Herndon. Bill Herndon was the night manager that got, that got fired from the cutting room. Um, I see f- rap featured by Craig G. And Dessert. Dessert was a girl who used to be a receptionist at the studio. Then it occurred to me that record was done the first time I ever set foot in the cutting room into a real studio. 
and I just sat there stuck for a minute because as soon as I put I put the record back on, I'm like, and I knew the I went to another turntable and I put the record on and I knew the words and I knew the melody. And I'm like, how do I know? That's what made me start thinking. I'm like, I know this song. And I looked, that's when I looked at the credits. And what are the chances that a record that came about the first time I ever set foot in a real studio, the first session I ever witnessed, produced by the guy who, who's firing inadvertently got me a job which gave me a career. Mm. There's at least five to 600 record, garbage records in that closet. I pick out one, not like the first one in the crate, like I just went into the middle and picked up a record. What are the chances that I give my son his first record with his first turntable and it happens to be that record from the first time that I ever set foot in the studio? You know? Fate. So like you say, when you said some you say sometimes the plan is written for you. I don't, I don't put, I'm not one of those parents that's like pushing him to, mm -hmm. I'm not putting a football in his hand or, mm -hmm. you know, or a golf club in his hand or, or, or a mixer in his face. You know, but I'm watching the way he gravitates towards the same things that I did, the same way that I did. And it's kind of, you know, it's heartwarming. It's it's also a little bit, you know, it makes me a little bit nervous because I'm like, all right. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough business. But at the same time, I've been through it. I can guide him through it. Mm -hmm. You know, but finding that record and that being the record that I randomly ended up giving to him just kind of blew my mind. Like, I don't, it's a sign of something. I don't yeah. know what. I mean, you know, I mean, look, for me, what I've learned about parenting is we're, you know, I use the bowling analogy, right? We're the guardrails. Our job is to keep the kids out the gutter. Yeah. Right? We're helping them in the beginning to throw a strike. Right. Right? Just make sure you don't get in that gutter. We can keep you. And we're old enough and we see you, you're good. Not the last strike on your own. And you exactly. might fall in that gutter, but the ball's gonna come back. And right. you got another chance to do it. Yeah. And that's the thing, it's just you gotta let them keep going. So for me, you see something early in them, just let them go. No, yeah, that's, that's, the thing. that's all Nurture. you gotta do. That's yeah. all we gotta do. Nurture. Just be the guides. We don't have to make them do what we did. We don't have to make them be better than us. We don't have to make them do what we didn't do, anything. Yeah, no, just whatever they it is that they gravitate yeah, towards. They're gonna nurture it. They're gonna like, yo, his up. first time in water, I wanna say he was like seven months, took right to the water like a fish. Mm -hmm. Like kicking, kicking his legs early, you know, the whole there was a two-year-old that was getting in the pool for the first time that same time that he did. The two-year-old did not know what to do, was not having it, was flailing it all over the place. Solomon's six, seven months old, just kicking, laughing, enjoying. You know, I'm like, point being, maybe he'll be a swimmer. You know what I mean? Like, Maybe. whatever it is that he, the, the things that he t shows affinity for, I just, you That's know, we job. just try to encourage That's that and, 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 uh, and nurture it, you know. Um, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, it, it is wild to see the early signs of that. Yeah. But that's like, but to me, that's a sign of positive reinforcement. Definitely. That's a sign of like, Changing maybe negative cycles that were bad before, but you guys have been doing that for generations now. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. sounds like your parents, did, your mom did the same shit for you. Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. It's kind of like <clears throat> you know the, the the positive support and reinforcement. Hmm. That's all we can do. Nah, for you sure, man. I mean? but and, and leave him a little something, you know, to to build on, you know, uh, when he's of age. No, for sure. We'll leave it with that, man. So I need you to get back there, get to sleep. Yes, sir. You know? I got an early day tomorrow, but we will, we will continue this for nah, sure. Yeah, we're going to do a we part two. definitely do a part two. We have to. We just, there's still too, way too much stuff to touch Nah, there's on. a lot. We didn't yeah. even talk about our relationship. I, the second, second time this happened, I did this with Clark. Right. Like, we got right, and then it was like, oh, shit. 
We didn't even get to that part. But that's the beauty of this shit, yeah. man. And it's fun because, again, it's conversations with friends. And Definitely. I get to learn people, learn shit about my friends. Right. right? Like, we've known each other mad long. But right. I get to learn shit about you. So it's great. No doubt. All right. But thank you for being here, man. Anytime. I'll we'll be back be- sooner than later. No, we'll be back, man. Sure. All right, y'all. We out. And uh, remember, this mask off. You can't heal what you don't reveal.